Welcome to Amplify. Music there from Francis Heary, and we'll hear from Francis this week about his project Animal Faith. This is episode 30, and I'm joined as always by CMC director Yvonne Ferguson. Hi Yvonne. Hello Jonathan. So we're bringing out this episode of the podcast slightly earlier in the week, and that's because we're in the middle of Library Week 2020, which showcases and celebrates the work of libraries across the country. Yeah, Library Week, this annual event, and it uh, really gives us in CMC a chance to highlight and showcase the work that we do in CMC Library and Archive. But of course, most importantly, it gives us uh, a focus to highlight the materials that we hold here in the audiovisual archive, in our score archive, and also uh, the huge archive of ephemera that we have here in the Contemporary Music Centre. And I suppose, you know, really, it came to the for for us uh, when the COVID pandemic started back in March, just how important it had been and the foresight that CMC had had to digitise the vast majority of our collection. So is so much of the audiovisual archive is, is digitised, is so much of the uh, score material that we have is digitised. And that really enabled us to keep a lot of our services, our core services going uninterrupted right throughout the pandemic. We were able to uh, supply the scores digitally to performers, to researchers, musicologists, conductors right around the world. I suppose you could say that the library and CMC is kind of the beating heart because, you know, a lot of our projects start with the with the library and archive, be they promotional projects, be they performance events, audience development events, or a lot of our online content. It was hugely interesting to hear Susan talk about uh, all the cassettes that were digitised during the recent project funded by the Heritage Council. It's a really great uh, project and really her her thoughts on the project, placing these works and the composers in their in their context. So here is that conversation between myself and our colleague Susan Brodigan. During our chat, Susan talks about CMC's library and she also picks out a few recordings from the recent digitization project, which you can also hear. The audiovisual collection in CMC, it's made up of a number of several smaller collections. And this includes archival and commercial recordings of works by composers who are represented by CMC. And this collection began um, when CMC was, was founded. And though all the recordings we collect now in CMC are either digital recordings or are on CD, we do have a legacy of collections which are held on cassette tape and which date back to the late 1980s and 1990s. We've been digitising some of the more vulnerable items in the collection and two recent projects have managed to digitise a number of older cassettes in CMC's collection. Tell me about those. We received funding from the Department of Culture in 2018 and from the Heritage Council this year, which has enabled us to digitise a huge tranche of these cassettes. And these cassettes are vulnerable for a number of reasons, particularly due to their age and the way that tape 
degrades over time. And we're really conscious of making sure that these recordings are preserved for the future because what's on these cassettes is really unique and isn't available anywhere else, particularly the archival recordings, which feature premier recordings and maybe the only recordings of some of these pieces. So we're really keen to make sure that these are preserved for the future. The pandemic has really highlighted the importance of having a digital and a flexible collection, given that our library on Fishamble Street has been closed to the public for a large portion of this year. So thankfully, due to these two um, tranches of funding, we've been able to preserve these cassettes for the future. So you've been going through some of the recently digitised items and you've picked out a selection of recordings. Tell me about some of these. Yeah, so it's been fantastic to have the time to, well, a little bit of time to go through these newly digitised recordings um, and see what little treasures are in there. And there's so many, I think I've only really scratched the surface on them. Um, but a few that sort of have popped up and and captured my attention. One in particular is a interview with Joan Trimble. Um, not long before her death in 2000, I think this interview dates from around the late 90s. And it's a wide ranging interview that covers her career from, from the start, from when she moved to London, right through to, to her later career back in Ireland. But the particular thing that caught my attention was her speaking about her work, Sweep for Strings. And that's a work that we see a lot moving through CMC. It's very popular. So actually been able to hear the composer speak about this work and how it came to be composed was really interesting. There were three compositions that I had reservations about. One was my television opera. One was my um, sonatina. No, my, my piano rhapsodic trio, which had tunes. And the third was my suite for strings. It was the year of the Festival of Britain. The Arts Council was called SEMA in those days in Belfast, and they, they had a series of competitions for com composers. My father sent me uh, a notice of this, and he said, put something in for a competition. There were five or six classes, uh, and uh, there was a choral work, and there was an orchestral work, and there were, there were two pianos and songs and things. And I said, I'm not writing a song, I'm not writing a two-piano piece. Uh, I'll have a shot at a, a string work. I started it in January, uh, December 1950. I had a three-month-old baby and two older children and no nanny, no nurse. The family coming over for Christmas. I didn't see how I could do it. But I said, if I do it, it'll be a pretty poor work. I'll just write it off the top of my head. I, I really was ashamed of that work. But in two years afterwards, Dr. Arthur Duff in Dublin uh, was wanting new works and he said he liked send me the score and I sent it to him and he said we'd leave the fourth movement out I said thank you it, it doesn't fit in anywhere it would have been better without it and he put it on with the ra ra radio and orchestra and the gaiety 40 years 30 it's period music and you see my age group it fits into uh, groups of music that was written about that time or even earlier quite a lot earlier and nobody minds that it's got tunes now you see I don't mind myself. The audiovisual archive in CMC not only does it contain a lot of uh, recordings of performances, archival recordings, uh, commercial recordings that are not 
available on various different formats now. Uh, but also there's a lot of speech based content and that's the material that often provides, a, a, you know, the most amount of insights into a composer and, and into their works. And also in this context, there's a lot of recordings of live recordings that have spoken introductions. Yes, and these really add value, I feel, to the pieces. Um, a lot of these live recordings will have introductions by the composer themselves who will speak about the piece that we're about to hear. And one in particular, which is just massively engaging, I think, for anybody who would have been at this performance, was Eric Sweeney in the 90s introducing his music Pour Me Ami, which is a work for a quintet. And he's so vivid in explaining how he came to write this work how the musicians work together, particularly in, in the, the format that they are, and how he imagined this work as sort of a casual conversation between friends who are playing music. And the music sort of gradually prompts them to stop chatting and play the music that Eric's written in front of them. I had some very basic uh, thoughts in mind about what makes an ensemble, because you're writing about five individuals who yet have to produce a very unified performance at the end of the day. Five people who, if they go into a restaurant, might order five different menus or have five different views on politics or arts, whatever it is. The other aspect of this piece which I had in mind was that it should be a conversation. Now, I think the great thing about a wind quintet is that it's a very sociable kind of group, perhaps less informal than a string quartet. And you really need five good friends to uh, put it together. And it's such an engaging explanation that I, when I'm listening to his introduction, I can't help but be drawn into his world and can't help to really hear, want to hear the piece that, that's about to be performed. So those introductions are they're little snapshots in time, particularly when they're for premieres of pieces, which are just about to be launched out into the world. So they're fantastic sort of added value for the recordings that we have. I should also mention that uh, a lot of these recordings were actually arranged and organized by ourselves in, in CMC. We had, uh, well, we still have uh, an archival recording scheme. A lot of kudos has to be given to Darby Carroll, who, you know, recorded many of these concerts and, and has done a lot of work in documenting performances across musical life within Ireland and, and Dublin and uh, not just contemporary music uh, over, over the years and, and still continues to do so. And they would be of premieres commissioned by Music Network, for example, on, on, on different tours. Yeah, and there's quite a few of those concerts, particularly um, of Music Network tours and in, in venues you wouldn't maybe expect to have a recording from this one um, of a Raymond Dean concert from say Scary's Community Centre but I think it's a real case of um, of foresight when that scheme began in CMC because yes at the time it's really valuable to have those recordings but I think they become even more invaluable as time goes on when we're starting to look back at different periods of time and composition for research for ourselves when we're trying to paint a picture of composition across a period of time without having these recordings to highlight this and to illustrate this it would be it would be harder to understand what would have happened at various points in time so it really is an invaluable resource to have and it's great to make sure it's preserved now for for into the future 
what other recordings are are there that you've that you know have sort of jumped up out at you? I mean, obviously there's 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 so much there, but and and this is just really highlighting um you know the I suppose the diversity of of what has been what has been transferred and digitized during this current uh, tranche of the project. Yeah, so this tranche uh, managed to to digitize nearly four hundred cassettes, and there's over seven hundred recordings across those cassettes. So I'm really only just scratching the surface on this. So another one I mentioned there is the Raymond Dean concert from Scaries of his March Oublier, which is part of his macabre trilogy, as he calls it, which also includes his works Catacombs and Sea Changes, which is obviously very well known from the Leaving Cert music syllabus. This was also a music network tour. That's a fantastic recording to have, and I think it's maybe the only recording of that work that we have in the archive. These recordings help to mark various points in time in composers' careers. Another recording that we had um, is of an interview with Jane O'Leary from 1996, where she's at a festival of women composers in Indiana. And it's actually a fantastic resource because she's introducing Irish contemporary music to an audience who aren't particularly familiar with it. So she paints this overarching picture of the art scene in Ireland at the time. And there's one part where she mentions the then recent tax breaks that were introduced for artists. And the reaction from an American audience is amazing because this just seems to be so groundbreaking. And and it was at the time. And she also mentions the then newly created Department of the Arts with Michael D. Higgins. And then she also paints a picture of composition for contemporary music in Ireland at the time. We have a picture of her entire career since then. So it's really interesting to see this point in time. It's fantastic sort of cultural and social history that we have as part of these recordings. So composers are now benefiting from a very receptive environment for creativity in general. The first example of government involvement in the arts was in 1969 when um, they granted tax exemption from earnings on creative work. And this was a a major encouragement to people to come and live in the country. And quite a lot of foreign writers did move to Ireland. Uh, More of them became frustrated with all the technical problems and frustrations of trying to work in the country and left again. But uh, uh, it it has been a boost, as you can well imagine. Now, 15 years ago in 1981, uh, an even more important initiative was taken by the government and um, an Academy of Creative Artists, which is called Aestana, um, was created. It's an Irish name which goes back to uh, Middle Ages and it refers to a class of, of artisans, really. Um, it is an Academy of Creative Artists. It's made up of writers, visual artists and composers and filmmakers. And at the time, the prime minister of the country explained that this organization was created, quote, to give the artist a status and position in our society. We wanted to have the role of the artist clearly defined and the position and prestige of the artist equally acknowledged in modern Ireland. And there's also, I see from the list, there's an early piece from uh, Donica Dennehy from 1997. 
Yeah, so this is Pluck, Stroke and Hammer. And that's one of his, his more early pieces. I think the earliest work that we have on the catalogue from Donica would date from 1992. And this piece is for a piano quintet. And this piece was actually written the same year as Crash Ensemble was also founded by Donica Dennehy. So it's that, that point in time where contemporary music in Ireland is, is, is continuing to develop. So it's great to have that early early career piece as part of the uh, as part of the audio um, archive in CMC. So where can people find out more if they're interested in diving further into these uh, recordings or any matters related to the archive and the collection going back? Well, we'll be highlighting this particular recent digitisation with thanks to the funding from the Heritage Council. We're highlighting this as part of Library Week, which runs from the 30th of November to the 6th of December. And we'll be highlighting this across our social media with small snippets from some of these recordings. And we'll also have a feature on the website, which is part of our ongoing library feature through the digital door. And we'll get into some more detail on some of the recordings that I've mentioned here and some other ones from the archive. And for anyone who is interested in, in further research into any music from Contemporary Music Centre, I always encourage them to get in touch through the contact details on the website, because though our library is currently not open to the public, we're very much virtually open to the public. CMC's Library Coordinator, Susan Brodigan, on CMC's Digitisation Project. Our thanks to the Heritage Council for their funding support of the project. You can find out more at our website and be sure to check out Susan's ongoing Through the Digital Door series, which explores some of the items in our library. Next, composer Francis Heary on his project Animal Faith. And I spoke to Francis in late August of this year. The project is funded through an Arts Council bursary grant and researches the intersections between bioacoustics and composition. If you're interested in finding out more about the project, you should check out Francis's excellent ongoing blog about his work. That's at his website, francisheary.com. Francis, maybe start by just telling me about this particular research you're doing into composition and bioacoustics. I got a, a grant from the Arts Council. I got the uh, an Arts Council Music Bursary Award to research bioacoustics and the kind of compositional applications of bioacoustics. So I'm living in Berlin and I've got access to the, um, the Natural History Museum's Animal Sound uh, Library, which is huge. Uh, I'm still kind of like finding my way through it. And I've got a bit of support from the museum to get like access to sort of specialized stuff if I want to find it. So that's basically the background to all the work I'm doing like compositionally. L- looking at bioacoustics, obviously looking at like 
things like kind of sonic morphology of all sorts of different different animals, uh, you know, pitch contours and rhythms and texture, but also slightly more interesting stuff maybe in terms of time and timing is something I'm kind of interested in. Longer form, uh, how uh, animal sounds are phrased over maybe the, a period of four or five minutes or five or ten minutes. The idea of like also of, say, insect sounds being a very, very micro-compressed kind of information. The time is also kind of a, an interesting aspect that I'm kind of looking at as well. More recently, the, I was commissioned by the Natural History Museum in Berlin a couple of years ago to write a kind of an acousmatic piece based on nightingale uh, songs, or in fact, the song of one particular nightingale. So that was my first, that was the first piece that I actually wrote, which was specifically related to bioacoustics. Before that, in my PhD, I'd been obviously interested in kind of aesthetics from what you might say, like a philosophical angle for for years. And one of the angles of my PhD, one of the kind of sub-chapters of my PhD was about a, a biologist from the 30s or so called Adolf Portman. And he really kind of struck my interest because the biologists at this time in the 20th century they were only they were working only a couple of decades after Darwin or like Darwinian evolution evolutionary theory had sort of taken hold. So in that part of the 20th century, you've got lots of interesting sort of speculative kind of different questioning voices about like life and 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 evolution, etc. So this one German um, biologist had this theory that the great variety of appearances. In the animal world, the the massive variety of different forms and appearances and morphologies of of animals. But I mean, to cut a long story short, he implied that it was kind of superfluous. It wasn't. It was unnecessarily interesting, unnecessarily ripe, mm. rich aesthetically. And his 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 fundamental idea was almost anti-materialist in a way. He was proposing that nature has some kind of a its reason for being is to kind of like ex- express itself in a very abstract sense. It's to kind of actually push these appearances forward into the world. And nature is this appearing, appearing thing. And this obviously goes contrary to the idea of a lot of biologists who would say that like, well, the important thing in an animal, which is basically a kind of a squishy kind of machine, is the internal organs and the outer appearances is just to protect the internal organs or to yeah. find the mate, etc. So I was really struck by this. And at the time, I was listening to a lot of Morton Feldman and getting into a lot of like abstract expressionism. And I saw this kind of link between Portman's idea of these like self-referential animal expression, you know, kind of non-functional, just expressing just for the joy of expressing in some kind of transcendent way. And Feldman's kind of aesthetics of surface and the kind of self-referential aesthetics of abstract expressionism these these things seem to be kind of like tied in 
for me when I was doing my PhD. So since then, I've been really interested in, in this idea uh, of the kind of like abstract aesthetics of animal life and, and natural forms. And does that abstract aesthetic carry through into the actual sound world of those animals or is it around our, you know, our understanding or lack of understanding in terms of what they do and how they exist and why they exist? Yeah. So the, the important question is what does abstract actually mean like in this context? And I suppose I'm coming from, I guess, Feldman's kind of definition of like the abstract experience. He was very much into this kind of like non-narrative type of approach to composition mm. um these kind of like he was very obsessed with surfaces and and uh I, what i always find interesting about feldman was his music seems to be quite autonomous it doesn't seem to need very much doesn't seem to need to borrow very much from linguistic type of tropes it's very kind of static it's almost like kind of like i always think of tree bark for some reason when i think of feldman's music in one sense very flat but in another sense extremely kind of rich and interesting so in terms of like like what the word abstract means for me i guess it means something to do with non moving away from language i suppose and when you move away from language of course you're moving into a very strange area because you're moving away from kind of thought and you're moving away from rationality and logic uh, which of course is what art is very good at doing but i suppose this project is sort of bringing the weirdness of art the kind of non-linguistic weirdness of art the uncanniness of art and sort of framing animal life from that perspective sort of thing. The other thing I, you know, I notice about this project is that it's documented very well. You know, you have a blog and you're documenting the research and the compositional development during this project in what seems to be quite a systematic way. How useful is that sort of approach when it comes to your own your own musical development or path that you're going in? I mean, a blog at this stage is actually old fashioned. I don't think people actually read more than like like three lines. I'm writing like my, some of these blog entries are three paragraphs. And I'm thinking that could be way too long for anybody to actually read these days. So it's, I'm kind of like late, late kind of jumping on the blog bandwagon. Yeah. But it's it's super. I found it super useful. Uh, I mean, for me, focus is is very, very necessary, really. And it does, again, give another point of focus to kind of kind of express clearly what your thoughts are to a, an, either a public or an imaginary public, whatever it is. One thing that I'm very surprised by, which caught on early in this research, was I've been, I've been experimenting a lot more with, with visuals, which I've never done before in my life. Of course, that probably wouldn't happen if I hadn't been documenting this on a blog because it's a very visual medium and, and it's obvious that, um, you know, that the internet is a very visual, visually orientated yeah. uh, medium. So that's something that's been really interesting to me as well. And that's been quite inspiring uh, to I've been using like um, Jitter and and uh, kind of Max MSP together to add another layer of whatever ex- expressivity or whatever to the to the word. Yeah, yeah and I mean I I think it 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 is interesting. Well, it's certainly interesting for me to see that process when when a composer kind of reveals something into that kind of into the process of how they work. I think that helps uh, a far better understanding of that 
particular composer or artist's work in terms of where they're coming from. It was interesting to hear you say that you're you're asking a lot of questions in your blog, and I certainly I certainly picked up on that. I mean, one of the things that kind of features quite prominently was you performed outdoors in the is it the Bavarian forest? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I was visiting my in-laws down in Bavaria. Yeah. Maybe tell me about that uh, sort of idea or I suppose the practicalities behind that as well as the process. And I suppose the other the other thing that I picked up on was your, you know, your question about if this performance is an intrusion or a natural event. And I, th- I thought that was an interesting way of framing it. Indeed. Yeah. And again, I can only frame it as a question because it's an interesting question, but I'm not sure if I, have, I don't have an answer Performing outdoors was something I was, I've been interested in doing for a few months. May I can't remember if if it was pre-COVID or post, but it's certainly a very very appropriate performance medium to be experimenting with, like now <laughs> social distancing and stuff like that. I actually I genuinely can't remember, but I've always been interested in kind of place in a very broad sense, and I've done quite a lot of uh, site specific long form installations. I thought for this project, uh, embedding myself in some kind of quote unquote natural environment, whatever that word actually means, would be very interesting. In terms of the question of whether it's a, an intrusion or whether it's a part of nature, this, I guess, poses another question as to what the origin, what technology is. What is it that defines technology as, as opposed to some natural technologies? Like an airplane is technology, I guess, because the idea is that because human beings decided to, to make airplanes, whereas birds didn't decide to make wings. I suppose that's the general idea. So for me, the, the, the thing that seems to separate technology from nature is the idea that technology is something that human beings who have control uh, decide to, to engage with. And I'm a little bit skeptical about that whole premise, really, because certainly now we're seeing how technology is, we get the feeling that it's beginning to kind of like slip away from our grasp at the very least, that we're being um, swept along with it as as much as we're controlling it. It seems to be that that it's always been tools and technology that have given rise to further tools and technology. I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of science fiction. I guess maybe this is where it comes from. But I, I began to wonder whether human beings are some kind of medium through which a deeper form of expression allows itself to express itself, and much in the same way as as language, which is a a good candidate for the original, the original kind of technology. Uh, just as it's, it's a kind of a strange question as to how much language, how much control we have over over our language, and how much uh, language has control over over us. And I think the same question can be asked about technology. Uh, technology changes behaviors, it changes thought patterns, it sets limits of thought, it also opens up other avenues of thought. So yeah, if if it if it's a, if it's true to say that we're not totally in control of technology then the question is where does that come from and whether there's a kind of a shared source 
between human technology and the technology that is like skeletons or opposing thumbs or camouflage and chameleons, etc., etc. Maybe there's like a, a kind of a shared source. The, the other thing that strikes me about performing outdoors is that it's this, you know, the notion of what makes a performance in music and where it takes place. And I wonder, through this project, have you thought much about this notion of performance space and what constitutes a performance? Um, you know, does it have to be in front of a live audience or can it be as you as you were describing in the middle of a forest with insects doing their thing while you do your thing <laughs> yeah communing communing with, with with nature yeah yeah i think it's a really interesting question i mean for a few years now i've been very interested in doing these long form uh, installations uh and i i found it i found them to be the most fulfilling performances i've done myself as an improviser uh, particularly because they they often go on for four or five or six hours. The last one I did, I think, was in Yates's Castle in Tour Ballylee a couple of years ago for Culture Night, and that was around about five and a half six hours uh, of just me performing within fairly constrained uh, boundaries. I think that for me that's a very interesting medium because it's kind of bringing what you might call kind of experimental or academically oriented in music into the public sphere. Uh, but what's actually super useful about this is a very simple thing: is that when people don't feel like they're forced to have to sit through something for forty minutes, I found they've been very, very open to what's happening, and I've I found very, very um, regularly that people have said this isn't really my type of music, but I stay for like forty minutes or half an hour or whatever. I think that there's a lot of potential for kind of embedding sound art or contemporary composition in terms of long form pieces in in public spaces which i think i think it's a very valid kind of a very interesting avenue it's not it's not we don't see it. it's not super common we don't see it all the time um mm. so that's certainly one area that i think um could really flourish like in this in this type of situation when you have to um have find new ways of getting audiences to listen to your music uh play out in the open with like five meters of distance between everybody um is, is one way of doing it Francis Heary. That's it for this week. Next week, we'll have a special feature on Irish National Opera's 20 Shots of Opera. Until then, bye for now and thanks for listening. <laughs>